The reading tonight is from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through to 31, rather than 27 as on the sheet. It can be found on page 1153 of the Church Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning at verse 12. The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ, for we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, Where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, Those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and the parts that we think are less honourable we treat with special honour, and the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honour to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honoured, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And in the church, God has appointed first of all apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then workers of miracles, also those having gifts of healing, those able to help others, those with gifts of administration, and those speaking in different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret, but eagerly desire the greater gifts? And now I will show you the most excellent way. This is the word of the Lord. Well, um, today, this evening, we're carrying on our little series on some of the metaphors that are used in the Bible. There are dozens of them, but we're only covering them under four separate headings. And I think last week we did the agricultural ones. This week we're doing the anatomical ones, the body, which is perhaps the easiest to understand. It's in fact the one that the Apostle Paul uses the most. Now I wonder if you can uh, work out who might have written this about the church in 1991. I see it as an elderly lady who mutters away to herself in a corner, ignored most of the time. Well, you may have visited uh, 
I think they're elderly care wards. They used to be called geriatric wards. There were geriatric hospitals. There are even hospitals for the uh, psychogeriatrics, which uh, I can assure you were quite grim 40 years ago in uh, the middle of the countryside with 1,400 patients or so in. And it was rather tragic to see them with their minds uh, gone, living in a fantasy world of confused recollections. What a picture that is painted by that quote. I see the church as an elderly lady who mutters away to herself in a corner, ignored most of the time. Well, who said that? Well, George Carey, who became the next year Archbishop of Canterbury. And that's certainly how many people perceive the church to be. But he'd have never stuck as Archbishop for 11 years if he didn't also have held out a much greater vision of the church, of what it should be, and the knowledge that uh, as he travelled around the world, he saw glimpses of it as really how it's meant to be. It's a taste of heaven on earth. The problem we experience whenever we think about the church concerns the tensions between the ideal and the reality. P.T. Forsyth wrote, The Church of Christ is the greatest and finest product of human history, the greatest thing in the universe. On the other hand, Thomas Arnold could write, The Church as it now stands, no human power can save. When I think of the Church, I could sit down and pine and die. Fortunately, he wrote that 170 years ago, and just as then, just as now. There are good examples, and there are bad examples of the Church. So what can we learn this evening from this passage that Mandy read to us from Corinthians, so that we might aspire and work towards more towards how Christ would like his church to be. Now, the church is made up of people. It's not buildings, it's not institutions, though, of course, we need rain shelters and we need organisation, but that's, they're just support services. It's people that make up the church. The church is a community. The church is an extension of God's family, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, and he has invited us to join that family. And the way the Apostle Paul tends to talk is, well, one of his predominant ways is talking about the body with its many parts. The body metaphor is his favourite way of talking about the church. And usually... Though not always, Christ is depicted as being the head of the body. So that means that if you've become a Christian, you are no longer alone in this universe. You are part of a community. We all, as a part of that community, have some part to play. We all, as part of that, have a different part to play. The human body is one, but made up of different parts. And so too the divine body, the church. One, but made up of different individuals, each with their own particular part to play. 
Now, how do you enter the church? Well, in one sense, you just come in through the doors. In another sense, far deeper, is that um, you've gone through an initiation rite. Whether you were baptised in water as a baby, or whether you were baptised in water as an adult, either were initiation rites into the visible church, the church you can see. But it's all external. They are visible rites of a visible church. But there is an invisible spiritual dimension that is what we read about here, and it's essential. Verse 13, writing to the Corinthian church and applying the principles of charitable assumption, people are what they profess to be. In other words, their outward affirmation that they are part of the visible church is taken as an expression of genuineness and that we can assume they are a member of the invisible church. Though, of course, they may not be. Well, he writes, verse 13, For we, are, for we were all baptised by one spirit into one body, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now, when someone turns in repentance and places their trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation, then the Lord Jesus Christ baptises them uh, by means of his spirit, the Holy Spirit, into the new community, the body of Christ. In a formal sense, uh, an outward sense, the minister baptises somebody by means of water into the visible community, but Christ, through his spirit, baptises people into the spiritual church, the invisible community. And that happens once and for all when we are converted, when you change your number one allegiance in this life from yourself to Christ. Now we're all uh, at that point baptised into the spiritual body of Christ, the invisible church. And in return we are all given one spirit to drink, Paul says. We're in the spiritual church and the spirit is in us. An essential starting point, but not a finishing point. Genuine Christians have a common experience of being spiritually united with Jesus Christ by means of the Holy Spirit, his spirit. And that spiritual unity is evident both in those days to Jews and Greeks who didn't always get on with each other, slaves and free. Or if we were to use, um, apply those categories today, we would speak whatever ethnic group you're from or whatever socio-economic group you are from, then we are one. It doesn't matter what our backgrounds are. The fact that we're in Christ overrules all other differences. Spiritual unity in Christ transcends both race and how many readies you might have. So, a hefty emphasis is on our unity based on our common experience of Christ. Well, we now turn to verses 14 to 26 
and some of the problems when people get the wrong idea about spiritual gifts before we then finish off as we turn to the last few verses where we're reminded of both the unity and the diversity within the congregation and we look up some of the specific gifts that are mentioned there. Well, earlier in the chapter, we read verse 7, Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. And verse 11, in speaking of spiritual gifts, Paul says, He, that's God, gives them to each one just as he determines. So every Christian is spiritually gifted. Probably, in fact, multi-gifted, and your problem is how do you manage to use your gifts given the limited amount of time that you have? And the answer is a combination of what is your greatest passion and what is the church's greatest need. And then he goes on uh, that each one of us, therefore, has a responsibility that goes, that goes with a God-given ability, and that is, namely, to use it. I see Janet has been opportunistic in the notices and put a little notice in for us all, just in case we were not quite sure how we might exercise whatever gift we've been given. You can have a word with her, and you can put it into operation. So we all have a part to play. Unlike the human body, there's no equivalent to the appendix. In the spiritual body, we each have a vital role to play, not a dormant, an unnecessary one. Now, as with any group of people, there will be those with little egos and low self-esteem who will be tempted to say, I'm no good, you don't need me. And there will be those with a massive egos and no problem with self-esteem who are more likely to look at others and say, well, you're not much cop, we don't really need you. Well, what Paul was faced with at Corinth was that some people with a couple of particular gifts were rather full of themselves and their particular contribution to the life of the Christian community. As a result, those with, quote, lesser gifts were tempted to feel rather second-class citizens or outsiders, as he mentions in these verses, while those with the in-vogue gifts were inclined to view themselves as superior and insiders and had an unhealthy and unchristian characteristic of arrogance. Of course, the reality is, as we know already, that all gifts come from God, And he dishes them out or distributes them as he sees fit. Given that, there's no justification for either envy or vanity. No justification for envy because God is the one who has allocated who gets what. And no justification for vanity because whatever we've got, we've been given it. We haven't acquired it. Anyway, let's see in 14 to 20 what he specifically says to those who feel a little left out and on the margins. They are in danger of jealousy, discontent, self-pity and inactivity. They need to realise a few facts. Verse 14, the very nature of the church means that not everyone is the same. 
Now the body is not made up of one part, but many, the Apostle says. Just as the human body needs a variety of parts, it needs feet, hands, ears, eyes, a nose, so too does the spiritual body need a variety of parts. All are needed for it to function properly. So to either wallow in self-pity or fail to do your bit is a challenge to God's goodness to you, who has equipped you to play your part. Verse 18, God has arranged the parts of the body, um, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. So don't be tempted to say, oh, I can only do this or that, that's not very important, I'm not really needed. You are. You have your part to play. We need you to play it. God has equipped you to play it. And then verses 21 to 26, a word to those with big egos. If you've been given particular gifts, ones that are particularly noticeable, you could be tempted to suffer delusions of grandeur. Tempted to rather look down on others, thinking that, well, we could do without you, couldn't we really? wouldn't really matter. But, verse 21, think on some of these ridiculous human body analogies which he uses. He says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Imagine that in practice. Imagine you're going around a supermarket this week and your eye is drawn to uh, something on the shelves that you want. But you haven't got any hands. Boy, will you get frustrated because you can't get it off. You see, you can't get it. What you want and you desire, you can't put it in the trolley because you haven't got hands to reach up and get it. Imagine um, Yeah, you ought to have my handwriting. Um, um, or imagine that you, um, you had the hands but not the, the legs. You know, you, you can't get things if you're legless, can you really? I mean, it's too high up. Verse 22. Those parts which seem to be weaker are in fact indispensable. Verse 23 and 24. And parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty while our presentable parts need no special treatment. What he's saying there is that we cover up our reproductive organs. They are not visible and yet quite obviously they are pretty vital for the future continuation of the human race. And so too some gifts which are not as obvious as others, are still important for the overall health of the body. So in response to those who think, I'm no good, you don't need me, or you're no good, I don't need you, God says, you need each other. Verse 25, equal concern for each other. So let me just... um, summarise a little bit and then just finish off with the last few gifts. So on becoming a Christian, we receive the gift or baptism of the Spirit 
and then seek continuously and increasingly to appropriate the fullness of the Spirit. As a result, the fruit of the Spirit appears and ripens in our lives. And the gifts of the Spirit are given to individual believers for the healthy growth and work of the church. The New Testament, when they write about the church, often contrast its unity and its diversity, both due to the Spirit. The church is one because it is indwelt by one Spirit, and it is also diverse because the Spirit gives different gifts to the many believers. The gift of the Spirit leads to unity, and the gifts of the Spirit lead to diversity. And the same could be true, it could be expressed, instead of using the Spirit, you could use the word grace. The grace or the charis of, uh, of the Spirit and its diversity of gifts, charismata. You could do it like that. A prism is a very helpful way of seeing how the Holy Spirit operates. You're familiar with a prism. The white light goes in on one side and is refracted so that to come out the other side with a nice set of rainbow colours. And it's a good illustration of God's gift, God's grace and God's gifts. You can see it in diagrammatic form there. So, what are spiritual gifts? You have in verse 4 of chapter 12. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all them in all men. So although the gifts are diverse, there is only one giver. The same Spirit, the same Lord, and the same God understood as God the Father. And he also uses three different words to denote the gifts themselves. Charismata, grace gifts of the Spirit. Diaconia, forms of service modelled on the servant king, Jesus. And energimata, energies, workings of God's Spirit. How many spiritual gifts are there? Well, these are the different uh, lists you get in the New Testament. And um, you can see how many are listed in each one. Sometimes they're the same, sometimes they are different. In this particular chapter, where you have 18 gifts listed, five are the same and 13 are different. Clearly it's not exhaustive because the gift of song composition, for example, is left out. And even more valuable, the gift of being an IT guru is also left out. What's the relationship between spiritual gifts and natural talent? Well, some people say none, and others uh, that there are barely any difference at all. Um, uh, But clearly there is a link, because it is the same God as creator who gives us our natural talents. Sure, we have to kind of cultivate them, but essentially we are, you know, probably given a, it's the, the nature nurture debate, but there's a lot of nature in it, and we have to cultivate it through nurture. But that same God, when you, when you become a Christian and you put your, your God-given package, as it were, 
to his service, they become spiritual gifts of use within the life of the church. What about miraculous gifts? Well, you may have noticed there there's a mention of miracles. Well, if you look at the Bible, miracles pop up in um, only a few places. They pop up in the Old Testament with Moses. Remember the ten plagues of Egypt and the crossing of the Red Sea and the provision over 40 years of manna and water as they wandered through the Sinai and Negev deserts. Then there's Elijah and Elisha, the first of the prophets, who each of them raised somebody from the dead each. And then, of course, there's Jesus, who on 34 occasions is recorded as performing miracles, either to individuals or to unspecified numbers of people. And then there are the apostles. On 10 occasions, the apostles perform miracles. Peter and Paul both each raise one person from the dead, like Elijah and Elisha. Now, the apostles and the prophets were divinely authorised commentators on the acts of God which they had witnessed or had been inspired to comment on. And we're told that uh, their ability to do miracles was the way of God saying, attesting that these people were genuine spokespersons. So Moses is described as who the Lord knew face to face. Anybody else who encounters God face to face is immediately dead. But his ability to do miracles confirmed to Pharaoh that he was speaking from God. We read in Deuteronomy, none like him, for there was none like him for all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do. And then there's the Lord Jesus, who the writer to Acts, Luke, says, was attested by God with mighty works and wonders and signs which God did through him. And then there are the apostles, um, who bore witness by, quote, the writer to the Hebrews, by signs and wonders and various miracles. And Paul says of himself, he possessed one of the marks of the apostles, the ability to do miracles. So in one sense, these guys are unique. They have a unique ability because they have a unique role as divine spokespersons for all time. But occasionally, in scripture, there are one-off miracles. And we don't believe in a closed universe, so we have to have an open mind should something ever miraculous come across our path. Well, I mean, are there, for example, apostles today? Well, in one sense, uh, yes, because in uh, John's Gospel, all Christians are apostles, which just means are sent. Um, Also, in uh, the New Testament, there are apostles of churches who were messengers from one church to another. So in both those senses, they could be around today. But in the primary sense of being one of the twelve, or Paul, or James, the brother of Jesus, eyewitnesses to the risen Christ, well, that is unrepeatable, and they have no successors, and they have provided the foundation. Or what about prophets? Well, in the Old Testament, the word of God came to them, and they spoke it, and they were similarly unique and unrepeatable. They were foundational and they authorised 
uh, and they were the authorised spokesmen and attested by miracles. But in a lesser, um, a lesser sense, Agabus predicted a famine. It's a kind of one-off. Um, but also, if you think that um, what the prophets were up to in the Old Testament, where they were taking the law, they were looking at the state of the people, and they were inspired to apply that law to their position, whether they were in favour or not in favour with God, according to whether they were conforming to his ways or not to his ways. And I suppose in that sort of secondary sense, where we look at the Bible and we try to apply it to our situation today, that in one sense, as Joel hoped for, we are all prophets, or have the capacity to be so. Um, So to whom are the spiritual gifts given? Well, to everybody. We've seen that in the body metaphor there are many members, they all have different functions, and we do have a responsibility to um, use them. It's interesting to see also where spiritual gifts come from. In 1 Corinthians uh, 12, 4-6, we've seen that they come from the same Lord, meaning the Lord Jesus Christ, the same Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and the same God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. They are derived from God the Holy Trinity. In the lists that there are in the New Testament, for example, in Romans 12 and 1 Peter 4, they are said to come from God the Father. In Ephesians 4, they are said to come from the ascended Christ, the head of the church. And although the Holy Spirit is quite clearly the executive member of the Trinity now, ultimately all gifts and all fruits of the Spirit come from all three of them. So, just to, uh, to finish, there are these one or two other gifts. The gifts plural, oh hang on, yeah, the gifts plural of uh, healings, both are plural in fact, although the translation doesn't say so, that means whether you're a care worker or a neurosurgeon, you have gifts of healings. They're not necessarily miraculous, it doesn't say that they are here. And then there are tongues which in the New Testament are either used of the organ of the mouth or of a language. And there's been a debate for 120 years. And if you know something of it, you're probably thinking, gosh, we're going to be here a long time. Well, we're not, because basically, just to sum up, that um, 120 years ago, people um, experienced um, uttering disconnected syllables, which is a phenomenon that you will find in some other religions, for example, Sufi or mystical Islam, And they concluded that that, saying unintelligible utterances, is what the Apostle Paul is writing about in Corinthians. Others tend to take the view that um, just as in Acts 2, they were clearly understood foreign languages, that they are in 1 Corinthians. You can debate amongst yourselves. But they would argue that in Corinth, which was a great cosmopolitan port with trade going north, south, east and west, that um, the gift of um, being able to speak a foreign language and the gift of being able to translate it, because translation and interpret are the same word in Greek, could be seen to be very useful indeed. So just as we end, helps. 
those able to help others, and administration, although that's an appallingly bad translation, helps. They're the they are of great assistance in the life of the church and lots of help need to go on. I can think in our church that when someone has a baby, the church supplies them with meals for a few weeks afterwards on your first baby. On your fifth baby, they will do it for months. I can think of other situations where those towards the other end of life, where someone goes shopping for an elderly person or goes and sits with their elderly spouse whilst they can get out and have a little bit of peace and quiet and me time. It may not be obvious to most of us and it might not be well known, but it is vital in any Christian community, and we're immensely grateful for those who have that gift and who exercise it. And last, gubernesis. That's what the word in Greek means. It's the word from which we get cybernetics, which is the study of control and communication systems. Now, in the New Testament times, this word was used as the captain or helmsman of a ship who would steer the vessel on course, avoiding all the hazards that might shipwreck it. In Greece today, in fact, the word is used of the airline pilot who uh, gets you safely to your destination. For us in the church, that destination is heaven. And those of us who have that gift, it is to get, to, it is to get the rest of us to heaven without being shipwrecked on the way. We only need a few helmsmen, but we need lots and lots of helps. You all have a part to play, but in Scripture, gifts, no matter how talented you are, are not actually as highly valued as fruit, fruit of the Spirit, characteristics character traits of Christ and especially if you read to the end the fruit of love let me pray Heavenly Father we thank you that we have all been picked up by you and put into one body and we all have a part to play we pray that you would grant us discernment and the capacity to take advice and guidance so as to find our niche, the part that you want us to play. We pray that that would be identified and we pray that we would work out our greatest passion if we're short of time and we'd offer ourselves for service and we would value the gifts and contributions of others and may we exercise our gifts in love. Amen.